0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 31, 1 Kings chapter 19. Well, for the moment, Jezebel seems to have won she could easily replace those 450 prophets of Baal that were killed on Mount Carmel at the order of Elijah. So just because of their deaths, she wasn't at all deterred from her commitment to make Baal Israel's god. After all, These were phony prophets of a false god in the first place. So it was just a matter of her appointing some new ones, of which there was a generally endless supply. Her real success, however, was that she finally managed to get Elijah out of her hair by issuing a threat on his life. And in response, he immediately fled from the northern kingdom. What Elijah didn't know was that the death threat was actually intended to get him to abandon his mission field, which was Israel. Perhaps even resign his commission as a prophet of Jehovah and to leave. Killing him would have been quite problematic for this evil queen as Elijah was now popular among the people of Israel. At this point it appears that her plan has worked because chapter 19 has a devastated and despondent Eliyahu taking his assistant with him and hastening to the southernmost city of Beersheba in the southern kingdom of Judah. So let's pick up this narrative at chapter 19 of 1 Kings verse 3. That If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 394. On seeing that, he got up and fled for his life, and when he arrived in Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. But he himself went a day farther into the desert until he came to a broom tree. He sat down under it and prayed for his own death. Enough, he said. Now Ad and I take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and went to sleep. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. And he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on the hot stones and a jug of water. And he ate and he drank and then lay down again. The angel came again a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. And he got up and ate and drank and on the strength of that meal he traveled 40 days and nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. Then the word of Adonai came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Eliel? And he answered, I have been very zealous for Adonai, the god of armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, broken down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword now I'm the only one left they're coming after me to kill me too and he said go outside and stand on the mountain before Adonai and right then and there Adonai went past a mighty blast of wind tore through the mountains tore them apart broke the rocks in pieces before Adonai but Adonai was not in the wind and after the wind came an earthquake but Adonai was not in the earthquake And after the earthquake, fire broke out, but Adonai was not in the fire. And after the fire came a quiet, subdued voice. And when Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his cloak, and he stepped out and stood at the entrance to the cave. And then a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for Adonai, the God of armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant and broken down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword. Now I'm the only one left, and they're after me to kill me too. And Adonai said to him, Go back by the way of the Damascus desert, when you get there, anoint Hazael to be king over Ram. Also anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of avel Machla, to be a prophet after you. Yehu will kill whoever escapes the sword of Ha'azel. Elisha will kill whoever escapes the sword of Yehu. Still I will spare 7,000 in Israel. Every knee that hasn't bent down before Baal. Every mouth that hasn't kissed him. So he left. And he found Elisha the son of Shephat. And he was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. He himself was behind the twelfth. And uh, Elia went over to him and threw his cloak on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elia and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye. Then I'll follow you. And he answered, Go, but return because of what I did to you. Elisha stopped following him. Then he took the yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, cooked their meat over the wooden yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people to eat. And Then he got up, went after Eliel, and he became his servant. Quite literally, Elijah wanted to die. Why? If he truly wanted to, wanted to die, he only had to remain in Israel. Jezebel would have happily accommodated him. (coughs) After all, he supposedly fled from Jezebel's threat in order to avoid her taking his life. To this we don't get a direct answer, except that he says he may as well die because I'm no better than my ancestors. In his current depressed and defeated state of mind, he essentially questioned the worth of his God-given gifting as a prophet Since by all outward appearances, he and God's mission for him was a failure. What he says, or rather, when he says he was like his ancestors, he didn't mean that he came from a line of prophets. Prophets weren't like priests. While priests were priests according to a specific bloodline, prophets Prophets were individually anointed by God without regard to their lineage. So a prophet didn't usually come from a family of prophets, although apparently it did occur, and the Bible gives us a handful of examples. We don't know anything about his ancestors, but apparently they were just ordinary Israelites, and they hadn't received this great honor of a high calling that Eliyahu had. But in this weak moment of self-pity, fear, exhaustion, discouragement, he is discounting this enormous, this this unmerited gift of being an anointed messenger of God's oracle to a king and to God's people. And so he decides that since death comes to all men no matter what, This lonely place under this broom tree, well, that would be a good place as any to give up his spirit and end his earthly trials. Better than some tortuous death at the hands of Jezebel, Elijah had no illusions about dying and having an afterlife with the Heavenly Father. As far as he reckoned, this would be the end of his existence. Especially so far as we know, he had never married, he had no sons to carry on his spiritual essence within them. And as he lay there riling on these dark thoughts, he fell asleep under the shade of this ratama tree. Where shortly an angel touched him and he awoke. And prophets usually received their instructions from the Lord by means of dreams and visions. Sometimes it seemed to occur by some indefinable uh, unction of the Holy Spirit that welled up from within and it came without speech or vision. But here a malach, an angel, appears and tells him to get up and eat so that Elijah's strength would be restored. There before him was a cake baked by hot stones and a flask of water. The cake is in Hebrew, uga. Uga. And it specifically means the kind of bread that is usually flat bread, baked in, in, in the shape of a, of a disc. It's the kind that the Bedouins typically make. Because cake like loaves require time for the dough to rise, and then it's got to be cooked in an oven. Not over a open campfire. Well after eating and having some water he fell asleep again and a little later he was awakened a second time by this angel. And what's interesting however is that in this verse this angel is identified as the angel of the Lord. Malach Yehoveh Now I don't know why the complete Jewish Bible omits this mention of the angel of the Lord and in his place it just says angel because clearly most other Bible versions add of the Lord and it is there in the original Hebrew in any case, here Elijah encounters not an ordinary angel but some manifestation of God himself Recall that it was the angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Sinai and claimed to be the great I Am. And not surprisingly, this angel of the Lord that we see here influenced Elijah to trek to Mount Sinai or as it says here, Horeb. Horeb and Mount Sinai are interchangeable terms. Now just to revisit momentarily this issue of the identity of the angel of the Lord. An ordinary angel is never referred to with God's formal name attached to it. Rather, an ordinary angel is either simply a Malach or a Malach Elohim. Elohim is just a generic word that can indicate any god or if the context warrants it, it can refer to the God of Israel. These typical Malachim plural for angel, invariably made it clear that whatever it is they spoke or instructed, they were simply delivering a message as a servant from God. They did not claim authorship of the words. They did not speak their message in the first person. I, me. But when we see the term Malach Yehovah in the Bible, then we see that this special angel acted and spoke upon his own authority. He does speak in the first person, I, me. And in his. Delivery of this divine oracle to Elijah, this angel that touched him more or less says, I say, not God said, thus and so. The angel speaks in this case with self-authority. So the angel of the Lord is clearly one of several mysterious manifestations of God that doesn't so neatly fall within the commonly defined Trinitarian doctrine that strictly limits... All of God's possible manifestations to three Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have since, early in the Bible, been introduced to one manifestation of God called the Shekinah, yet another one called the Angel of the Lord. So, as much as we would all like to characterize God by kind of tying him up in a nice, simple bundle, and labeling it the Trinity, it isn't quite all that easy. I mean, can we sing to God and worship Him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But let's not think that those simple man-made words somehow capture the Alpha and Omega of God's nature or of His manifestations. Those words are merely expressions of truth that acknowledges God's simultaneous plurality and oneness, and that our Savior is indeed God. As Rabbi Brooks fond of telling us, numbers in the Bible have great significance, and the number 40 is symbolic of transition. Thus, Eliyahu travels 40 days and nights until he comes to Mount Horeb, and the end result is going to be some kind of transition, some commentators say that it took so long for him to get there because he didn't know where he was going he just wandered around and Horeb is eventually where he wound up others say that he knew where to go he just didn't know how to get there so it took him an inordinately long time either of those solutions seems like an improbable stretch in my view I think he knew exactly where he was going, but he went slowly and deliberately and likely wanted the time of personal solitude along the way. He also, no doubt, didn't go 40 days without further food and water. So we're not to take the words on the strength of that meal he traveled 40 days and 40 nights to mean that he had nothing more to eat or drink for six weeks. Okay. It, rather, it was that the meal gave him this burst of physical and mental energy needed to take on this task of an arduous journey through the desert country to get to Mount Horeb. We've all had that experience of being so tired and hungry that we just become lethargic and we just want to sit. But after some sleep and a meal, we're we're refreshed and we have a more optimistic attitude. As I've discussed with you before, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Oreb was not in the Sinai Peninsula, where the St. Catherine's Monastery stands today. Rather, it was on the Arabian Peninsula, Mm -hmm. on the east side of the, the Gulf of Aqaba, which, by the way, would be of approximately equal distance from where he was up here, So it would have been about an equal journey time from 'er Beersheba whether it was to the traditional Mount Sinai or to the more correct one. Anyway, in verse 9, he arrives at Horeb and he goes into the cave. The Hebrew says the cave, not a cave. In other words, there was this well-known cave or, or, or crag or cleft in the rock there. And probably an occasional ascetic holy man would go there as a pilgrimage. This cave is thought by many Bible scholars to be the same place as the cleft in the rock where Moses hid as God passed by. Let me remind you of that because he's now in the same place. In Exodus 33, 17-23, it says, Adonai said to Moshe, I will also do what you have asked me to do because you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. But Moshe said, I beg you to show me your glory. And he replied, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and in your presence I will pronounce the name of Adonai. Moreover, I show favor to whomever I will. I display mercy to whomever I will. But my face, he continued, you cannot see because a human being cannot look at me and remain alive. Here, he said, is a place near me. Stand on the rock. And when the glory passes by, I'll put you inside a crevice in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand. You'll see my back, but my face is not to be seen. Elijah spent the night in that cave. And sometime during the night, Jehovah came to him and asked him a very pointed question What are you doing here, Elijah? Now let's not forget that he was directed to come to this place by the angel of the Lord, who is a manifestation of God. So the question's not meant in the sense of God being surprised that Eliyahu showed up and he wants to know what brings him here. Obviously, the all-powerful Jehovah knew exactly why Elijah was there. The question was meant for Elijah to ponder at a deeper level in his soul, but it was also meant to open a conversation. To me the the question carried with it on level on one level a sense of Why are you here in the middle of nowhere when I assigned you as my prophet to the people of the kingdom of Israel? Why did you leave the mission field and the holy vocation that I gave to you? Eliyahu answered. He did it in a way entirely unbecoming for a prophet of God. Let alone one through whom God had done such incredible miracles, had loaned such incredible power. Nonetheless, it was an honest answer that revealed an unwelcome flaw in Elijah. Elijah offered God a little more than a gripe session, he complained to God. It reminds one a bit of Naomi as she explained that God had given her a bitter life by means of the deaths of her husband and both of her male children. It reminds one of David complaining on more than one occasion about how he felt alone or how devastated he felt and wondered why the Lord was permitting such a thing. See, complaining to God is okay. Generally speaking, it's not a sin. The thing is, however that we should never see our complaints to Him as a sign of merit on our part, that we have the attitude that we're just being honest and therefore an honest complaint is a good complaint. Complaining to God means we disagree with God. Or we think He should have rescued us by now. We don't like His timing very well. Or he never should have all allowed us into this bad situation we're in that this developing in the first place. And Elijah says that the Lord needs to understand; he's always displayed great zealousness for Jehovah. In other words, he's expressing his personal merit. Look what I've done for you, God. And despite this great zeal for God that has cost him so dearly, he's explaining. The people of Israel are still breaking the covenant of God, meaning the Mosaic Covenant. By committing idolatry, they've broken down all the altars used to honor Jehovah and they've instead built altars to Baal. God's people whom he sent the prophets to in hopes the people would see their wickedness and repent rather than face God's judgment killed the messengers. And despite the incredible miracles that happened on Carmel now Elijah sees himself as the last one and he is as good as dead. And embedded in this gripe session is Eliyahu's scathing diatribe against God's people. See, the implication is that because the people of the northern kingdom had treated Elijah and his other prophets so badly and they had completely turned their backs on God's Torah in favor of worshiping false gods, then the Lord needs to pour out His wrath upon them. He needs to get angry with them. Elijah even exaggerates. He says, hey, I'm the only one left among the prophets. Which, by the way, wasn't true. That's interesting to me. That what Elijah did was to view his predicament as an us versus them matter he was righteous oh, but the rest of God's people they just weren't therefore God ought to inflict righteous national judgment on them but of course he ought to be exempted what is so also interesting is that close to 1000 years later this event in elijah's request for God to terminate all efforts towards gaining the repentance of the ten northern uh, tribes and instead repudiating his people, this was well remembered in the minds of the Israelites. As a matter of fact, in Romans 11, St. Paul actually quotes Elijah to make a point. In Romans 11, 1-5, through 5, it reads like this. In that case, I say, isn't it that God has repudiated his people? Heaven forbid, for I myself am a son of Israel from the seed of Avraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not repudiated his people, whom he chose in advance. Or don't you know what the Tanakh says about Elijah? He pleads with God against Israel. Adonai, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I'm the only one left and now they want to kill me too. But what is God's answer to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not knelt down to Baal. It's the same way in the present age there is a remnant chosen by grace. See, it is for the sake of the remnant that God will never be done with His people not a Gentile remnant a Hebrew remnant this is the context of Elijah's complaint it's the context of Paul's rebuttal The 7,000 of Israel who remained faithful from 1 Kings 19 verse 18 were sufficient to keep God from repudiating his people altogether they weren't perfect But they were chosen by grace. They didn't obey the Torah without flaw. They simply trusted God and they refused to take up idol worship. Now, well, wait a minute. I thought grace was a New Testament dispensation. Here, Paul explains that just as it was by God's grace that the 7,000 were chosen in Elijah's time, so it is by the same grace that there is in Paul's day a chosen Hebrew remnant who have remained faithful by accepting Yeshua. Thus, even the Lord's greatest prophet who pled for God to close the books on his chosen people was refused his request because as long as there remained a faithful remnant, God says he would not be done with them. Now, if God says that's the case, and if Paul says that's the case, why is it standard Christian doctrine that God is done with his chosen people? And he's replaced them with a Gentile church. Why is that? It's because the church is as confused and wrong-minded and jealous that God would continue to call His chosen people despite their stony hearts as was the great Elijah. So we're in pretty good company. Here was Elijah's problem. He had not seen the fruits of his works and all of his sufferings. The success he assumed would happen, didn't. And now he comes before the Lord and he basically wonders why the Lord would put him through all this for nothing. And since the people didn't respond, then God should just give up up on them, because Elijah has. Elijah gave up on the people. He abandoned the mission field where they lived. You see, the moral of our story is that our job as disciples of Yeshua, regardless in what capacity, is always to be obedient to the Lord, to follow the Lord, and let the chips fall where they may. Immediate, even near-term, earthly success isn't always a sign that we've done things God's way. Or achieved what the Lord sought from us, conversely, not seeing near term success is by no means the sign of our failure. But nothing is more human than to feel otherwise. Rather, our obedience is our only guarantee that we are properly filling fulfilling, rather, our assignment. And in verse eleven, God tells Elial to step back and he actually went back into the cave so we find out to wait and to watch and suddenly this mighty blast of wind tore through the area and that was followed by a violent earthquake and then this fire breaks out and we're told that God was not in any of these And God says that he is not in any of these manifestations of of nature. Storms, earthquakes, destructive fire are elements of nature that God controls, but they're not God. God's not in them. Further, none of these things helps to define his character. Rather, these things are used at times for wrath to bring destruction. In fact, this was a common understanding among ancient societies that storms and earthquakes and fire were the wraths were the wrath of gods. So the symbolism is God is not going to visit any of these things on his people as Elijah would like him to. Rather instead God is going to try to change their course by continuing to show them mercy. So in verse 13, after God has demonstrated His control over storms and earthquakes and fire, now suddenly a quiet, still voice spoke to Elijah. Being quiet and gentle is God's nature and character. Being patient and seeking His people to repent and turn away from their sins that's his nature so when Elijah perceived this gentle voice he knew that any danger had passed and now he could uh, safely step outside this protection of the cave or this crag or whatever he was standing upon so did Elijah get it now? did he finally understand that the Lord will not repudiate his people but instead is going to give them more time to repent. And as a test, Jehovah repeats the question he asked Elijah at first to see if Elijah's learned anything and has himself repented for feeling as he did and for abandoning his his God-given assignment. What are you doing here? Elia, the Lord asks. And wouldn't you just know that Elijah replies with exactly the same answer he gave the first time. I'm okay, but they're not. They were mean to me. So you should sow your wrath upon them. It's time to let them go and choose somebody else. You see, we've come far enough along in the story of Elijah and you have sufficient information and context for me to now make a fascinating point for you that the rabbis note one of the things that the Lord was trying to teach Eliyahu by using the various symbolisms of storms and earthquakes and fire and then finally a quiet voice was that God's way for prophets, for teachers to instruct God's people is calmly and tenderly not through anger and coercion and this is because the ways of shalom and not wrath are how God wants to teach His people, guide His people, relate to His people, and to bring His people to repentance when they sin. And Elijah has been guilty of doing the opposite Because instead of working through gentle and loving means to change the hearts of the people of Israel, perhaps by teaching them God's Torah, how about living a godly way as an example, he instead became angry and impatient and he called down a devastating long-term drought on the people. Notice... Back in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, we hear these words. Eliyahu from Tishbi, an inhabitant of Gilead, said to Ahav, As Adonai, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will be neither rain nor dew in the years ahead unless I say so. There is no mention anywhere of the Lord telling Eliyahu to take a harsh message to Ahav or of the Lord threatening to stop the rains. It's just that most Christians read into it that it was God who ordered this stoppage of rain. Rather we hear Elijah make a vow to Ahav as Adonai the God of Israel is that it's not going to rain for the years ahead unless I say so. This was a rash vow that God eventually overrode for the sake of Israel who was suffering. Had, uh, God had indeed given Elijah unbelievable power an authority to make these kinds of decisions such that if Elijah ordered the rain to stop, God would grant it and it would stop. And Elijah says that it was not that the rain would start up again when God said so, but rather when Elijah determined that the people could receive rain again. Now let's book back to 1 Kings 18 verse 1. A long time passed. Then in the third year, the word of Adonai came to Elijah. You, go present yourself to Ahav and I will send down rain on the land. God is taking the matter out of Elijah's hands. In chapter 17, the I is Elijah. And there's no mention of God sending Elijah to Ahav. In chapter 18, the I is Jehovah, And in this case, God does send Elijah to Ahav and we find that God is going to start the rains again. Elijah could have started the rains at any time since it was Elijah's prerogative to stop them in the first place. But God, in His mercy, decided that Elijah was being too harsh on His people And so God says he will show mercy and order the rains to begin again. This reminds us of when Moses struck the rock out of anger. And then when water poured forth, he took credit for it. What was the result of that? God prematurely removed Moses from his position and he turned it over to Joshua. Joshua would see the fruits of Moses' earlier efforts. Moses would not. And also, as we approach the end of chapter 19, we have the Lord instructing Eliyahu to anoint a new prophet named Elisha. In time, we're going to find that everything that Elijah had been assigned to do after the incident here at the cave at Mount Horeb, Elisha will do instead just like the pattern of Moses and Joshua. So in verse 15, after Eliyahu refuses to repent for his bad attitude before the Lord, the Lord sends him away with instructions. He's to go far north by the way of Damascus. And when he arrives, he's to go to the Gentile Hazael and anoint him to be king over Aram, which is generally akin to saying Syria, And then Elijah is to anoint Yehu son of Nimshi to be the new king over Israel. In addition, he is to anoint Elisha as a prophet who will replace Elijah. (laughs) Now, we have to understand that in the end, the only thing from this to-do list that Elijah actually accomplished was to anoint his own replacement. Elisha. It was Elisha who would anoint Hazael, uh, uh, Hazael and Elisha would actually send a disciple of his to anoint Yehu. Now verse 17 is a bit cryptic but what it's saying is that the king of Aram is going to lead an army into the northern kingdom of Israel and invade and cause a lot of death and destruction and after that's happened <coughs> excuse me, Yeho king of Israel will oppress and kill his own people And after that, Elisha the prophet, he'll kill more of them. But that's not what actually happened. Yehu assassinated King Ahav and he killed off all of his family and then Hazael invaded Israel later. What it is that Elisha would do in this regard is even more problematic. So far as we know, Elisha didn't kill anybody. But we do find in Second Kings that bears tore up a number of young men as a consequence for mocking Elisha. And of course, as a prophet... Elisha's job was to exhort and, and if necessary, chastise the people to realize their sins and repent, but they refused and many were killed from foreign invaders. So perhaps the intent is that Elisha was indirectly associated with the deaths of many from the ten tribes. That's how he was seen. That is because Elisha was God's prophet when he rebuked someone and that person did not heed that rebuke, there was usually a terrible result, such as death. In fact, the rabbis say that prophets need to learn to be very wise and cautious in their dealings with people and not to rebuke them except as a last resort because the consequences for the rebuked but unrepentant person could be catastrophic. In verse 19, Elijah obeyed God and he went and found Elisha by putting his own personal prophet's cloak on Elisha's shoulders and in that way he designated Elisha to be the next major prophet of Israel and his replacement. The verse reads poorly in English as though Elisha was plowing a field using a team of 12 oxen. Such a thing is unheard of. Rather, the idea is that Elisha's family had 12 teams of plow oxen. 11 were being used by others. He was driving the 12th team. Okay? Elisha immediately understood. He accepted his commission as a prophet. And when in verse 20 he asks... To go and kiss his father and mother goodbye, the Hebrew never says to kiss them goodbye, rather only to kiss them. And this is because in the Middle Eastern culture such a kiss is simply of itself, a greeting or a goodbye, nothing more. Elijah told him to go, but be sure to come back because of what I did to you meaning to designate Elisha as a prophet according to Jehovah's instructions. Now some see something wrong in Elisha going to his parents before following Elijah and that's because it has a familiar ring to it. All right? In Matthew, 8.18-22, 8, it says this, When Yeshua saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. A Torah teacher approached him and said to him, Rabbi, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Yeshua said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds flying around have nests, but the Son of Man has no home of his own. Another of the Talmudim disciples said to him, Sir, let me first go and bury my father. But Yeshua replied, Follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. See, there's a big difference between Elisha saying goodbye to his parents before following Elijah and the man in the Gospel of Matthew wanting to go home to bury his father. First, a son was under the authority of his father. It would have been shameful for Elisha to, to, to not first ask for his father's leave to go and then to show courtesy and respect to his parents by telling them goodbye and explaining why he was leaving. <clears throat> the man in Matthew, he wanted to bury his father but it was really about simply waiting for a more convenient time before he followed Yeshua as a disciple. It was an excuse to look good to this rabbi, say all the right things in front of these other men, but actually not do anything. See, it's not that his father, as some think, was already dead and needed to be buried. It's that he wanted to go home and wait until some unknown time in the future when his father eventually passed away, as all men do. If his father was actually dead, the young man wouldn't be standing there with Yeshua, he'd be sitting Shiva, at home with his family. Not to be with his family in mourning would be a sinful violation of Torah law and bring great shame upon him and his family. But this common misunderstanding is what happens when we try to read the New Testament backwards into the Tanakh without having carefully studied the Torah and the Tanakh first. Now, in order to demonstrate the extreme gravity of what has taken place, Elisha decided it was appropriate to have a family feast. But what he did was to kill and slaughter his two plow oxen and then use the wood from the plow yoke as the fire to cook the meat over. By this demonstration, he was essentially burning all the bridges to his past. His pleasant life as a field worker and a very well-to-do family was over. He has enthusiastically traded it for the ascetic and uncertain life of a prophet of God. Once the ceremonial feast was complete, Elisha uh, immediately went to Eliyahu, and he became his apprentice. And I said early in the lesson, that 40 days and nights that Elijah traveled to Mount Horeb signaled a transition. Well, here it is. Eliyahu at Mount Horeb has essentially given notice to resign his calling as a prophet. And God was not going to override his will on that matter. There was no joyful victory here. In Elijah taking his prophet's mantle off of his own shoulders and putting them around Elisha. It is quite sad in many ways because it is so emblematic of so many fine and productive Christian ministries and dedicated Christian men and women that at some point lose their way, they lose their enthusiasm and their first love, and they become no longer useful for God's kingdom. The Lord has little choice but to let them go, to replace them well before it ever needed to be. And the biggest loss is going to be their own.